Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to episode 12 of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. Today we're here to talk about part 12 of Twin Peaks The Return, Let's Rock. My name is Nick, I'm here, of course, with Dylan. Hello Dylan. Hello Nick. Ooh, a little spicy today. Yeah, I, I, I thought of that one like one second before, and I was like, oh, yes, yes, that's the one. <laughs> that's the greeting for episode 12, even though, oh, I should have said let's rock. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry. It's, ironically, we get the least amount of Kyle McLaughlin possible in this episode, but you know That's what? why that's I fine. had to do it. Yeah. I had, to, I had to establish a little bit of McLaughlinism into this podcast, inject a little, since we were deprived. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, so, yeah, part 12. Let's rock. Uh, do you want to just give some some general thoughts on this episode? Sure. Uh, this one is, while there are some like little, I'd say, mini themes of uh, of like fatherhood and paternalism. Mostly, I think this is sort of like a we get shed some some things that we're gonna see in the in the future episodes up until the close. But overall, I thought that this was kind of like a... It's a strange one where we would just kind of get dropped into a few areas, spend some time with some characters. Obviously, there's the big one, uh, the big, obviously, Audrey and Charlie scene. But other than that, it seems like we just were spending a little bit of time with some of these characters who are going to be more important in the episodes to come. Although nothing necessarily of consequence actually happens. Or not too much, I, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, I would say, definitely one of the least plot-centric episodes of the show. We, we move around a lot, but when you think about it, not too much in terms of the, the central quote-unquote plot involving the Cooper mystery really gets pushed forward. I mean, I would say, like, the, the biggest plot movement we get is the stuff with the Blue Rose Task Force and that's really just set up for everything that's going to come in the final third of the season really um, yeah this episode I remember being probably the most negatively received episode of the season as it aired and I think that the relative plotlessness is probably a contributing factor to that. I also think that it has a lot to do with the fact that we get, like we mentioned, almost no Kyle McLaughlin except for just the one uh, scene of Sonny Jim throwing a baseball at him. Um, Which is lovely. Oh, yeah, certainly. I'd say. But I think that those two factors, like the lack of forward plot momentum and the lack of any Cooperness, uh, contributed to this being one that people were frustrated by. Oh, and obviously the weird ass Audrey stuff that people were just <laughs> had no idea what to do with. So yeah, the internet was a buzz with well, obviously with the 
uh, uh, with the inclusion of Audrey and also how unceremoniously it would just get a cut to Audrey Horn standing there. Um, yeah. It, it did seem though, at least to me watching this, like we were, we were getting, uh, a lot like of, of the, of that we were getting a lot of names. We were getting a lot of um, little details about Billy that we had heard before. And it seemed as if this was like the, uh, a foot in the door of this whole other aspect of the show that we were going to get, which obviously as we know is not exactly the case. We are more or less left with what we're told in this scene, but I can see how the frustration uh, 12 episodes into the season it's not like this is part three or four or five where you know you feel like you can take a breath and just sort of take it in we're, we're closing on on the on the last third of the season and of course viewers wanted to see some some plot momentum uh, and that's not what we got however i still think that there's some there's some really nice moments in this episode uh that are that 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 show one shade of twin peaks uh, as we know it that i think you know, like like most of these episodes that we talk about where they had a bit of a negative reception, there are definitely things to like about it because as we've mentioned before, there are really no bad episodes of this of this show or of this season we can say. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, there there are scenes that I really love in this in this episode and any episode with Sarah Palmer can't be all bad. So um Yeah, so why don't we just get into it? Part 12. Let's rock. Were you here when they first came? Uh, yes. They brought it in a couple weeks ago. Your room seems different. And men are coming. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I know what you mean. I am trying to tell you that you have to watch out. Things can happen. Something happened to me. Something happened to me. I don't feel good. I don't feel good. Sarah, Sarah, stop doing this. Should I call a doctor? Stop doing this. Stop doing this. Leave this place. Find the car key. Find the car key. So this first scene that we get here, like we mentioned before, is probably the most significant happening from a plot perspective that we get. We see Gordon and Albert essentially inducting Tammy Preston into the Blue Rose Task Force. And right at the start here, we get uh, just an uncommonly huge lord dump from Albert where he goes and essentially explains what the Blue Rose task force is, which had never been made explicit in the show before. And he, he, he does allude to the origins of the name Blue Rose, which isn't really going to get expanded upon until later with the whole Lois Duffy thing. But Albert just sort of hints at it here. And, uh, yeah, so they, they decide to make Tammy a, uh, a member of the Blue Rose Task Force. And she is she's very happy about it. I actually really like 
Krista Bell's performance here. Um, she seems really genuinely flattered and moved to be inducted into this club here. It's a nice moment. Yeah, she gets kind of choked up and and, and you can see her like in her face. It seems like she's mulling over uh, this opportunity that she's been given. And I thought, yeah, this is for all of the, the times where she may, you know, maybe fall short. This is one where I really I felt like it was a kind of a natural reaction, that one that I completely bought. Mm-hmm. And the way that Gordon is smiling at her seemed like a really genuine smile to me, too. It almost seemed like. I could I could feel the like the real world um, implications here of Christabel sort of being inducted into the Twin Peaks community by David Lynch himself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I definitely him, had that the vibe. And him sort of looking at her proudly in that way. I don't know. That was that was definitely something that I felt watching this. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels obviously in the show between you know whatever multiple timelines but then there's also sort of some things that are of course plot centric that you can infer have some sort of uh, real world connection something like that which i think is really cool because obviously lynch took a took somewhat of a chance casting his friend in this role and obviously showed that he believed in her and then in a scene like that where she acts really well you get to see him express gratitude and look happy so Mm -hmm. i liked it also, we get to hear the name Chet Desmond for, I think, the only time in this season, which is very jarring because Chet Desmond is sort of a, uh, I don't want to say he's a forgotten character in Twin Peaks lore, but he's definitely one of the least um, expounded upon characters. And just to hear his name in this context was like, whoa, okay. Yeah, I've always wondered why Chet Desmond is like the the forgotten uh, Blue Rose task force member because obviously Philip Jeffries goes missing and we have all kinds of lore and information about him. Uh, Agent Cooper goes missing and we have all kinds of lore and information about him. Chet Desmond goes missing and no one even looks for him. There's no, there's no, yeah. uh, there's nothing. There's and and I really. I want to know. And I think that it's interesting that we get a callback to that uh, Chet Desmond scene later on with Diane in this very same scene. Um, I was excited when I heard his name. I thought we were maybe going to get just something, any little little bit of information, because that's one of my favorite unsung mysteries of Twin Peaks uh, is like, what the hell happened uh, to Chet Desmond? Yeah, we don't know shit about Chet Desmond. (laughs) Found a ring and then he was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, he uh, he ran into some lodge forces, and uh, that was enough to sort of send him uh, send him into the realm of of, uh, of non existence. But yeah, I it is weird. I um, just to get all this backstory is very it's cool, but in a way, it's odd because the original Blue Rose Task Force was Gordon Albert. Jeffries, Desmond, and Cooper. And to believe that, we have to believe that the Cooper that we see in the pilot of the original Twin Peaks had all this knowledge about the the supernatural and the blue rose and had all these contacts had all these contacts with Philip Jeffries and Chat. It just it's 
it's a little bit of a, a stretch. Uh, I, it's it's a pretty big retcon. Uh, I don't know that I can fully reconcile it with uh, what we see in the original run of Twin Peaks, but uh, it's, you know, it's fine. I think that it, it when you go on back and you watch the first season of Twin Peaks, Agent Cooper does seem not necessarily green, but definitely green to the, the concept of um, of how just how supernatural this case is going to become. Like at first he sort he approaches it like a classic whodunit, trying to use clues to deduce uh, you know, who the who the suspects could be. And he does have his like kind of oddball intuitions that he uses, but nothing like we would come to expect from you know, given what he should know if he's a member of the Blue Rose task force at that point. And I don't know, I think that there's this whole season it takes a pretty um, it takes a stance of some kind uh, toward revisionism, and I think that it might be maybe an excuse, but you can use this whole multiple timelines thing to excuse away any of those kinds of things. Literally anything. Any of them, like oh no, this is the one where uh, this is the one where Cooper actually the whole time, like Laura never went missing, and Cooper was this uh, this super. Uh, psychic blue rose guy and then this the other one is where uh, Laura does go missing and he finds out all the information after the fact but either way I thought that it uh, it was nice to to get that little bit of a lore dump although it it f- whenever you get that kind of thing from Lynch it almost feels a little bit disingenuous like you should sort of read between the lines and not take it too literally because we do know that it's very unlikely that he's going to explain anything of great significance or at least explain away any aspect of the mystery. So whatever we're getting is something that we're meant to in some way. Uh, It's either supposed to be a piece of information that is not totally significant to solving the grander mystery, or it's some kind of red herring or like obfuscation of, of something that we're supposed to, or an assumption that we might have. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, even if it is, uh, a bit of exposition it doesn't really get us any closer to understanding the fate of you know say chet desmond or or philip jeffries or, or cooper for that matter um you know and i guess you you could you could make the case that cooper from the beginning of the show always had a semi-magical uh quality about him i mean this is somebody who solves crimes by throwing rocks at glass bottles and you know has dreams where he's like communing with the spirit world and all these sorts of things so maybe it's not too far out of the question to assume that he had had contact with these these higher forces prior to showing up in Twin Peaks I guess yeah and if he's if he is the one who Gordon Cole sent to Twin Peaks with the expressed knowledge of um, digging deeper into this this case that obviously started with Chet Desmond and Teresa Banks. I think what was that a year before? Um, mm-hmm. That of course it's someone that he trusts and that would be knowledgeable about that situation. So uh, I, I think a lot of this show is is the way that it is because Lynch doesn't mind coming up with new ideas midway through a season and then just rolling with them and kind of mm-hmm. letting the past be the past. And 
I think that 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 lends to more really incredible, um, in, in entertaining and interesting scenes than it does, or or even just aspects of the show than ones that it kind of makes confusing. Sure, sure. So Diane shows up and they temporarily deputize her because they say they want their help, but it's pretty clear that mostly they probably just want to keep an eye on her at this point because they're onto the fact that she is being duplicitous to some degree. They're monitoring her texts. Albert, you know, last episode saw her memorizing the coordinates from Ruth Davenport's arm. So they're on to Diane. And I imagine that deputizing her is, uh, as much as, as anything else, just an attempt to keep her close so they can sort of monitor what it is that she's doing without her, her knowledge. Yeah, I'd agree. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. And uh, can we just talk about this set for a second? Sure. What? <laughs> uh, this is very odd here with the red curtains. Like, Yeah, I know. That's why I was felt like some of this was meant to be like there's something to be read between the lines or, or taken at uh with a grain of salt but i just can't put my finger on just what i mean this room makes no sense because it we don't we don't see the walls we just see that they're sort of enclosed off by these curtains within a room exactly like the freaking black lodge which is so strange like Diane emerges from the curtains, these red curtains that look virtually identical to those in the lodge. I just found it like it's impossible to ignore. It is, and I think it's it's an, obviously an intentional choice. Uh, but what the intention behind that choice is, I have no idea. I don't no. know if we're supposed to read into this like this is not really happening. But obviously, it has a lot of um, plot-centric stuff that matters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I part of me thinks that this is probably um like a production consideration, like maybe they didn't because of time or money constraints or whatever, they just didn't have access to the set that they wanted to use, so they had to convert a different set, maybe even the the Black Lodge set to suit their purposes, so they just kind of set up the red curtains around it. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if the camera had panned down and you would see like the black and white uh, <laughs> pattern of, of the red room, who knows? Yeah, because why would they design another set that looks like 75% yeah. like it? Why yeah, not just use the one you already have? That's my working conspiracy theory, is that this set is, is literally the Black Lodge set. <laughs> it's they still just an interesting choice. Yeah, they could have still... repurposed like any hotel room set they had also. Yeah. Yeah, because if very they were, curious. yeah, because I would think that they would just use the the hotel room set, right? You know what I mean, that, because that's that where Gordon's that's where the Blue's Task Force is for pretty much the remainder of the season up until like the last couple episodes. So there's just all kinds of things that are confusing. Like for example, when Diane is is deputized and she mulls it over, we get the same sound that we get when Chet Desmond disappears. Yes. That same, um, that same like kind of sucking in sound that mm-hmm. uh, you see when when you see the the Let's Rock written on the windshield of the car, and then Diane yep. says Let's Rock. It's like, mm-hmm. and yeah, you just absolutely. mentioned Chet Desmond. Like, what am I supposed to do with this, Mr. Lynch? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with all of this? Yeah, some pretty intense intense uh, attention to detail here. 
very deliberate connections to Firewalk with me here. Okay, so let's go through just a couple quick scenes here. Shouldn't take too long because they don't really have much consequence. We get Jerry running through a field. Period. <laughs> we sure do. He runs He's running his ass off. Yeah, he is. He's running very intently. And I believe we do not see Jerry again, if I'm not mistaken, until uh, he spots Richard and Mr. C in part 16. So he is running towards that, apparently. <laughs> we can infer that he is out of the woods at this point. He is, he is out of the woods. Uh, he doesn't have a truck, as we've established. His foot is not his foot. He's kind of a mess. Um, I think he'll so be yeah, okay. That's it. I, I believe in him. And then another scene, <laughs> like we mentioned before, Sonny Jim throwing a baseball at Dougie. This is all the Kyle McLaughlin we get in this episode. Maybe they were just like, we can't put starring Kyle McLaughlin at the end of this episode if we don't have at least some Kyle McLaughlin. So they just threw this in here. Maybe I think it's a very organic uh, situation because, you know, if, if, if Dougie has a son and his son wants to play catch, that's exactly how it's going to go. <laughs> he's gonna drag his ass out there and he's gonna throw a ball like it was one of those things where as soon as i saw baseball gloves i was like oh i'm about to watch dougie get hit by baseball like there's uh, yeah. no no if fans or buts about it and uh who knows maybe this is supposed to be an allegory toward uh the the dead-end dad of richard horn that that uh benjamin horn can't stop uh lamenting so there this is one of those like even though it was just a little throwaway thing, I thought it was an interesting choice to have a father-son moment because we do get um, a few of those throughout this episode in, of varying uh, varying levels of humor, we'll say. Hmm. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Um, I think this was the moment when I realized that Cooper wasn't coming back until the very end. Like This is when acceptance really started to set in. Like, when this was all we got... I was like, okay, well, we're just not going to get Cooper till like almost the very end. I, I thought possibly not at all. Yeah. It, well, it made it clear that, you know, the priority of this show is to tell all of these stories and we're not going to rush around trying to solve the one mystery that all of you want to be solved right away. You might have to sit through a whole an episode where all you see is uh, the protagonist being hit with a baseball for literally two <laughs> seconds, and that's that. And then you move right on, uh, which, uh, hey, that's what you signed up for. That's what I signed up for, at least. Oh, boy. I just imagine telling people before the season aired that all we would get from Cooper in one episode is just like a zombified version of him getting hit with a baseball for like five seconds. Imagine if that's, that's what it. Mark Frost decided to divulge rather than the coffee cup through the window. <laughs> Cooper gets hit with a baseball. He's like, oh, um, <laughs> uh, hmm, let my mind fill in the blanks for that one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Does he go to a Mariners game or something? Um, <laughs> yeah, so, oh boy, let's talk about what's going on with Sarah Palmer. Poor old Sarah. We haven't seen her for quite a while. I don't think we've seen her since... I was trying to think. I think 
the last time we saw her was when she was watching the animals get mauled on TV, right? Yep, and that's what, around part that five part, or six, maybe? No, that's part two. Oh, wow. It's all the way back then, huh? Yeah, so it's we haven't checked in with Sarah in quite a while, and she's not doing too well. I think the extent of her uh, damaged psyche really starts to shine through here in the grocery store. She is... Yep. Uh, I would describe her as being incredibly distressed about the arrival and placement of turkey jerky in this supermarket here. Um, she, She's uh, definitely got some some type of uh, schizophrenia or something. I think that that's yeah. what I was looking at it as. Yeah. The, the thing that I think really works here about the way that Sarah is portrayed is that you could read it in terms of like oh she's uh, she's been possessed you know she has consumed the frog moth she is uh, under the thumb of Judy in, in, in some degree uh, and and that's why she's exhibiting all this mental illness you know or you could project on her like she's just a woman whose daughter was murdered by her husband who uh later died as well and now she's just a haunted lonely woman living in this house you know with the ghosts of her past and her daughter's prom photo on her side table and she's just being constantly reminded of this life that she used to have and she's just had a mental break of some sort it it works no matter what angle you you choose to come at it yeah, and I think Twin Peaks has always taken the very human aspects of suffering and trauma and then portrayed them with supernatural uh, effect. And I, I think that's sort of what you're getting here. I mean, I watched most of this scene watching it as like this is a disturbed woman who for some reason turkey jerky was her trigger uh, and it just sort of set her off. Uh, and I obviously we get some things later in this season that clearly show that there is a supernatural element to what she's going through. But I think yeah. thematically it is, um, it is both we're, we're, I think we're meant to, to take the demons literally and then take them figuratively and in, in how they manifest. And I thought that this scene was, was, you know, a character from the, a character of your in the, in the modern age of twin peaks and like a lot of these they're just it's just kind of very dark and dreary and has this really uncomfortable claustrophobic undertone but even watching her like kind of mull through the store picking up vodka and 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 like in some kind of like tomato mix that she had <laughs> it just like painted this image For of a very yeah. yeah something um it was just painted this image of a very uh, sad and desperate and kind of beaten down woman. And then she obviously has some sort of mental illness that uh, was triggered by, by Turkey jerky or like, I don't know. I don't read so much into like the, like the men are coming and um, all of this stuff. Maybe we should, because the last thing that we, with C involving Sarah Palmer is a frog moth crawling into her mouth. Although I guess as a viewer 
first time around, you don't know for sure that that is Sarah Palmer, that that's, that is the American girl or however she's credited. So I don't know. I, I, I sort of took this one at face value as like, she is just completely disturbed and the way that she sort of talks herself out of it and says, Sarah, stop doing this. Sarah, stop doing this. Um, shows that she has some shreds of humanity left in her, which, um, which we really don't see much of throughout the rest of her time on this show. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I, I saw it more as like, this was, this is a, a character who is at war with herself in some respect. And there's some sort of, um, in the mental illness, we can, we can obviously, like we were saying, read both ways. Yeah. It's, it's a very sad portrait of a woman losing her mind and losing her grip on reality. Um, and, and regardless of how you want to read it or how you want to read the origins of it. Um, yeah, as far as the as far as what she actually says in this episode or in this scene rather, you know, the men are coming. Something happened to me. We obviously can't know, but I me personally, I always trace this back to the woodsman. Like when mm-hmm. she says men are coming, I always feel like she's referring to she's like she's having a like a triggering flashback to uh, her youth where she says something happened to me obviously she was uh, in- invaded by these these evil spirits um, and uh, I-, I always looked at the men as uh, woodsmen frankly that's that's just how I always read it but again there's there's no the uh, there's no real evidence beyond just the uh, uh, the circumstantial in that regard yeah I mean so. I, that's the most logical conclusion to draw is that like yeah that's all we really have to go on (laughs) because she says like were you here were you there when they first came like we we do see what we can assume is the arrival of the woodsman Mm -hmm. and then obviously the how that how that affects her Mm -hmm. uh but i've i think i have read somewhere someone was talking about this scene and they tried to make the point that um it could have been somewhat of a commentary or, or a continuation of this commentary on, um, on re on reboots and how Sarah notices this this change, this very kind of obscure change, but it is enough to sort of uh, trigger her and set her off the edge. And someone's trying to draw the connection that um, people want what they're comfortable with and want everything to remain the same, and that when something is different, it can be very disorienting. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that is like the focal point of a scene like this, but I, I can see how it's consistent with a lot of the other things that we get. And I do think that there is most definitely a uh, a commentary on reboots throughout the, the season. So this that could for sure be, be a part of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One more thing to mention about this scene i just want to give a shout out to somebody that we've shouted out before on this show the youtuber garmin bozia who did a sound effects comparison and she actually she did point out like you mentioned before the similarities between the sounds in the diane scene and the let's rock scene she also pointed out that the soundscape that we hear during the scene with the sort of uh, dissonant 
screeching noises are also borrowed directly from Firewalk With Me. I believe, if memory serves, they come from the uh, cross-cutting between Philip Jeffries having a freakout in the FBI offices and the room above the convenience store with the the jumping man and and the woodsman and all that. Um, And this is during the grocery store scene? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's the exact same sounds. Uh, So, yeah. There's... And I think her video is actually fascinating. I would encourage people to go check it out because she was able to pick out a lot of this sort of thing. Like, it turns out that quite a few sounds from the season are lifted just directly from Firewalk With Me. Like, just, like, very particular individual moments. It's pretty interesting. So, And I often wondered what decisions like that mean. Because there's obviously certain certain you know films or TV shows where the themes can kind of tell the story a little bit, and they're sort of used in key moments to to indicate what a certain scene may be about. But then also you have to consider that this was a massive undertaking, and they needed sounds for certain scenes, and perhaps didn't want to produce new ones, so they recycled things from from older from older scenes or or from Fire Walk with Me. Um, but either way, I thought that this, I knew that this, the sounds were familiar. Uh, I didn't know that they were from, from the Philip Jeffries scene, which is, which is very interesting. Cause obviously there's, there's a connection between Sarah Palmer and, and all of that stuff above the convenience store. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, if we're yeah, supposed I, to I, read into I that. I think it's just, I think the, just the comparison between those two, the, between those two sequences is just the, the feeling of mania. You know, like sure, I don't yes. more than any specific connection. Just like this scattered, what the hell is going on? Those are the dots that we're meant to connect. Yeah, um, I can I can see that for sure. So yeah, fascinating. Again, uh, I've mentioned it before. Go check out Garmin Bozia. She her, her channel is is very cool. Um. So let's let's keep up with this thread of Sarah Palmer. And let's pay a visit to the Palmer house. Hawk obviously has heard about the grocery store incident. One of the poor teenagers working there probably called the cops. <laughs> and Hawk walks up and I love, I love, love, love this just short insert shot of the edge of the ceiling fan from outside the window as Hawk approaches here. It's just, it's the first we've seen of the ceiling fan. And I, it's just such a, it's just such a quick, subtle thing that if you're familiar with the iconography of the show, you're like, holy shit, it's the ceiling fan. But it's just, it's just a little taste of it. Just this impressionistic little glance that I love. And then uh, following that, you get like sort of a a more up close version of it from inside the house but it's still just like the edge of it like we don't get any full blown ceiling fan action really but i just no, thought you get that the was... edge of it with the shadow cast behind it which i thought looked really cool yeah yeah i love it it's just it's just a very sinister sequence of shots here um, yeah, and it very... sets you up for what you're going to what you're going to be dealing with i think in the next scene like it, it's yeah. almost like a bit of a harbinger yeah, it's almost like 
it's almost like we see like oh shit well the ceiling fan's still on so we know that things are still fucked up in this house yeah the electricity <laughs> is still flowing it yes. has not stopped yes exactly um which is just amazing i mean it's it's a fucking ceiling fan and it just it conveys so much menace and dread it's i know it's and, and how that how that came to be is uh it's just through just i think excellent filmmaking and great use of sounds great use of like the context of that image it's always it always precedes something yeah uh, significant yeah like there's no ceiling fan lore you know what i mean like it's just now yeah. it's all done just through sound and image and it's just it's just lynch being being lynch um yeah it's great really great so you definitely get the impression that Sarah Palmer is like just the sort of sad old woman in the neighborhood that everybody sort of pities. Like she's she's the person that people feel compelled to just sort of check up on every once in a while. You know, like they know that she's probably not gonna like turn the corner and get better and, and turn her life around, but they're they're still concerned for her. The, that was the impression that I got from the way that Hawk interacts with her here. Yeah, she's sort of like an old relic of a of a forgotten time who and it's sad because like people in those situations of course could use the help of someone like Hawk, but they're often reduced to uh it's like, you know, you'll check on them, you'll make sure they're okay, but at the end of the day, you walk away, they go back into their house and and the torment continues for them and there's just not a whole hell of a lot that anybody can do about it yeah yeah and when she's at the door here i love the way that she sort of speaks through her teeth you know Mm -hmm. like she's she's just sort of like this well of broiling rage and resentment and and pain and the way that she says it's a goddamn bad story isn't it hawk just sort of gritting through her teeth is just a great great job by Grace Abriski. I've I've said it before, but uh, it's worth repeating that she is just absolutely phenomenal and definitely one of the the secret weapons of this show and has been from the beginning. Uh, I love her yeah, so prob- much. Probably one of the most the most well-acted characters on the show. She just absolutely can conveys um she conveys a, an emotion and a feeling and like a vibe without really being too on the nose about it. And you, like you can sense torment from her, but you can't exactly, just like you said, the way she says it's a goddamn bad story. Um, I don't know that the writing too, like that, that, that line itself kind of struck me um, because it is, it is a goddamn bad story that the deeper you get into it. And if, um, assuming that she is just talking about her own story and 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 the story of Lara and Leland and, and the Palmer house, it is and, and Maddie for that matter. It's a goddamn bad story and yeah, and Hawk knows it. it. <laughs> Hawk knows it all too well. Um, like it doesn't require much more than that line, but that line speaks volumes because um, what do you expect mm-hmm. for a woman in her in her situation? Um, yeah, maybe she could have she could have joined the. Uh, I don't know. Joined some clubs and made some new friends and, and turned her life around, but played some backgammon. Nope. Joined a bingo yeah. club. Fucking nope. 
that ain't how this goes <laughs> down. And that ain't how it goes down for anybody in Twin Peaks, as we've no. seen. Anyone in, in 2017 Twin Peaks or 2016 or whatever is supposed to take place. It's a goddamn bad story. That should yep. be the name of this episode. Yep, certainly. And Hawk hears a, a sort of clanging in, you know, somewhere from the kitchen. And Sarah looks alarmed, like, oh, you didn't hear that. And I think that's just like, symbolically, that's just supposed to represent the fact that Sarah is harboring secrets, you know? Yeah, I didn't think it was supposed to be a literal thing either. I know people have tried to make the case that there's woodsmen in her house and uh mm-hmm. i just don't i just don't really see it i think that the main the main like the linchpin to that argument is that is the woodsman on the stairs which i think we've both comfortably accepted that that's probably the the dutchman's and not yeah. the palmer house um, yeah so mm-hmm. i don't know i don't think so yeah no it's clearly the same staircase that we see um mr c go up later in the season so i don't yeah, I really, I don't think that that's the Palmer house. But yeah, I mean, if you wanted to draw that connection and say that maybe she has a, a woodsman or, or some other sort of uh, lodge force manifested in her house, you you could, but it's left and intentionally vague. And it's doing vague. the dishes. Yeah, it just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, the work of this scene is just to imply that Sarah Palmer has some, some manner of, of dark mystery about her and the way that hawk offers help to her he says if you need help help of any kind and the way that he says it to me it's almost as if he's implying that he can provide some sort of supernatural assistance to her you know like if you Mm -hmm. need help of any kind because we know that hawk you know he has his living map and he's aware of these dark forces that occupy twin peaks it's almost like he's sort of hinting like listen if there's something else weird going on like maybe reach out to me i don't know that that was just the way yes. that i read it he knows like he he's he's intuitive enough to understand that there's more than meets the eye with sarah palmer and i think he's yeah he's just offering that extension of uh i don't know what you want to call it spiritual healing maybe or some or just the fact that the mystery that they're currently trying to solve is one of, of a supernatural quality. So if there's anything, or even, I don't know if you have to call it supernatural or if you can call it spiritual or if those are the same things, but I I get the sense that Hawk uh, is like almost like a satellite for those types of things, like the darkness and the light. And he can clearly sense the darkness on Sarah Palmer and, and being who he is, extends his uh extends an offer of help but like like i think he also understands that she needs to like and this is even like a real life thing she would need to be the one to initiate that and 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 accept his help he can't he can't force her into any new light or anything like that so but yeah i i think this whole scene is just to serve uh to show that there is like you're saying just some sort of inherent shadow or darkness uh to the character of sarah yeah yeah these these two pair of scenes are super effective at at illustrating that in my opinion um let's go to the fat trout trailer park for a quick scene but very good scene that i like a lot with carl rod 
where I love the scene. Uh, I love it too. We, we we've talked about before how Carl Rod is just sort of like an unambiguously good guy, and this is maybe the the clearest example of that because he doesn't want this guy selling his blood for rent, which is understandable because that's a horrible thing to have to do. Uh, especially because he knows that this guy you know, does a lot of work in the community and he, he mows lawns and what else does he do? Like some sort of mechanical thing. I forget what it is. Yeah. Just some uh, kind of maintenance. Yeah. So Carl just tells him, look, uh, I don't want you selling your blood. Don't worry about this month's rent. And, um, yeah, t- to me, this is sort of in line with Beverly's husband and, and his healthcare struggles. Sort of a, it's, it's sort of a Frostian commentary on the sad state of, uh, American society and, uh, the fact that people who, um, need money are going to increasingly desperate lengths to, to make ends meet. Um, you know, Beverly didn't want to have to go back to work, to work for Ben Horn to support her husband. And this guy didn't want to have to sell his blood to pay for rent. And Colorado is just this voice of compassion, um, for him. And I, I just, I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. He's like the conscience of twin peaks. And I, I did like the choice of having him selling blood. Like it wasn't like this man was selling drugs to make ends meet or doing anything yeah. unscrupulous. He was literally selling his life force for food, <laughs> which which is yeah. really sad when you think, you know, that's a thing that people must do. They must donate mm-hmm. blood or donate plasma. And, absolutely. you know, you, p- people put themselves in absolutely horrific discomfort just to to make ends meet. And I think all of us regardless of your of your opinions on anything can understand that that's terrible and that no one should have to sell their own blood to put uh, a meal on the table especially when they are clearly doing things for their community and and, and are a like a valuable member to, to uh, or just a valuable person to all their the people in their lives um, it's like it's it's always those people that are that are suffering and struggling and so Carl Rod steps in and does what I think we all wish we could do and, and make life a little bit easier for those folks. Yeah. And I mean, the guy, he's like older and he's walking with a cane and just the thought of him having to sell off his, like, like you put it, his life force is just mm-hmm. unbearable to Carl Rod, understandably so. Um, but yeah, again, just it's something that doesn't have anything to do with the plot, but I think is very important for the character of, Carl Rod and the show overall. So I really enjoy it. Let's check in on D. Uh, sorry. Let's check in on Diane. Who is up to some curious uh, texting shenanigans here. She gets a text uh, from Mr. C, presumably by way of some intermediary, Las Vegas, question mark. And she responds with, they haven't asked yet. Mr. C really wants them to get to Vegas so that they can discover Dougie, or at least Mr. C hopes Dougie's corpse, so that they'll just sort of put an end to the the Cooper investigation. Um, 
right? I mean, that's 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 that, what that. I assume he's interested in Las Vegas for, but I'm not I'm not sure what um what the Blue Rose Task Force was supposed to have asked. That's the only thing that gets me. Right. I th- or, yeah. I I'm know. thinking maybe the only thing I can really think of is like um like we mentioned before, like the the ring that they found in Major Briggs's stomach, the whole um to Dougie from Janie E and we know that Diane is supposedly Janie E's half sister, so maybe he's oh. hoping that she would make that connection and lead them back to Vegas. I don't know. That's well, she that's does my, eventually. Yeah, it just yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> that makes it doesn't sense, happen actually. the way that uh, the way that Mister C planned out. Um, but yeah, definitely not. But she does. She does obviously divulge that information about Janie E, and I think mentions that she lives in Vegas and is married to a guy named Douglas Jones. Like I'm pretty sure she says all that in that final scene with her, whether or not, well, or, or whether or not that was the question that was supposed to be asked. But, mm-hmm. um, I did, I did find it interesting that she sends back that text in all caps again. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we get to see it on the other end as lowercase or anything like that, but, um, interesting mm-hmm. that both times she's texted, it's been all caps. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. Um, yeah, so we do get a later scene set at the same location at the bar here where Diane enters the coordinates uh, that she memorized from Ruth's arm into her phone and the map shows her Twin Peaks. And we can safely assume that this is Jack Rabbit's palace because mm-hmm. the only coordinates that we get on the show are to Jack Rabbit's palace and to that uh, the trap that ends up killing Richard. And I don't think that that trap is like um i don't think that it's necessarily in twin peaks is it i don't know maybe i think it's on the outskirts because that's where richard is because he's obviously on the lamb and Mm -hmm. jerry because he's been running um (laughs) it's yeah it's not i don't think it's it's definitely not in twin peaks it's clearly out in the wilderness somewhere but yeah, I, I feel safe yeah. assuming that that's Jack Rabbit's palace. Yeah, but and I have... guess considering it came from Ruth, you know, because we know that Ruth was on the search for those coordinates on Major Briggs's behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that the coordinates on her arm would be credible to me. What's confusing to me though is, did she put the coordinates on her own arm, or they put on after she was murdered by? presumably mr c um like i believe hastings says that she wrote the coordinates on her own arm okay i'm just wondering yeah. why mr. I, well, c actually, I actually just read think them. he says her hand but it's it's uh-huh. her arm yeah so that would have been before they went into the zone i one could assume or would mm-hmm. it have been when they were mm-hmm. in the zone yeah because she was going to give the coordinates to uh major briggs right Right. Yeah. So maybe so that guess... maybe that can lead us to believe that Mr. C wasn't present for when when um she was killed because wouldn't he have taken the coordinates off her her arm rather than having Diane find it at the scene later? Uh, oh boy, that's a good question. Um yeah, I don't know if I can answer that. Yeah, yeah more unknowable shit from that scene. Yeah, because Mr. C the way that he yeah, cuz he gets coordinates from uh, he doesn't get the coordinates from Ruth. He gets the coordinates from Ray, who supposedly got it from Betty Hastings' secretary. So 
right. yeah i don't know interesting question um i'm not sure not sure i have a good answer for that we'll shelf that one um, <laughs> yeah well we will shelf it maybe 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 after this i'll i'll do a little digging and, and see if anybody has any good theories about that but um yeah, and then <laughs> just the other detail that I like about this is that Diane's fingernails perfectly correspond with the the color scheme on her phone case. It's like four different colors, but uh, yeah, she's she's always very well coordinated. Diane, she's she has a look, and uh, I respect it. I love it. She's my favorite looking character on the show. She just has such like a the style, the the uh, like the the fashion design or whatever that they used is just unbelievable. It looks so cool every time. Every yeah, outfit. Diane. The uh, the costuming on Diane is pretty special. Really enjoy it. So the next scene that we get is at the Great Northern, where Sheriff Truman shows up and informs Ben that Richard was, in fact, the person who ran over that little boy. And also the fact that Richard had assaulted Miriam in the trailer. Ben is exasperated by this, but not particularly surprised. As he says, that boy has never been right. Clearly, this is not Ben's first go around having to clean up after Richard's messes. Um, and yeah, so Truman sort of asks Ben if he could pay for Miriam's medical bills. Ben is like you know he's like of, of course it's not you know it's, it's the least he could do and then ben gives frank cooper's room key which <laughs> i remember the first time watching this i was like screaming i was like give him the fucking room key is he gonna give him the room key because like i remembered <laughs> that he had it and it was just like i was so it was just like a sigh of relief when he actually gave him the room key um the way he holds it for quite a while too he holds it for a couple seconds before <laughs> dropping he goes for Harry and drops it into his hand. It's like they're yeah. teasing you a little bit. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that Ben gives it to him as a memento for Harry Truman. Because yeah, Frank is, I don't know. Frank is like, oh yeah, he would love to have this as a memento. So that was that odd. key is the one of the more perplexing little uh, trinkets in on the show because it like I'm really stuck on the the th- three fifteen thing and then the three fifteen thing in the in the mob zone. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I, every time it shows up, I'm hoping that there's going to be some sort of exposition on it. And it's like, no, this will be a nice little memento for Harry. And he's like, oh, definitely. Yeah, that'll be awesome. He'd love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Harry and, uh, Harry and Cooper were, uh, were pretty close, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the, uh, the secret best romance on Twin Peaks, Cooper and, and Harry. I have a little uh, uh, print on my wall. It's just like a, I don't know, maybe like, three three by three square that's uh cooper and harry sitting at a table eating donuts and it says coffee and donuts and best friends forever <laughs> yeah i think um i think i remember our uh our, our good pal jeremy greer saying something like to the effect of like yeah the galaxy brain ship of twin peaks is uh cooper and harry i totally agree yeah they're just um, the bros <laughs> yeah so then frank leaves and we get just one of my favorite little scenes here that nobody ever talks about but is just 
I, I think just the pitch perfect, really resonant moment here between Ben and Beverly. Ben has just heard about all the horrible things his grandson has done. He's in a really terrible position of having to sort of answer for his grandson and and clean up his messes. And he starts reflecting very suddenly about this two-tone green Schwinn, this bike that was given to him by his father. And he's just talking about how much he loved that bike and how much it meant to him as a kid. And just, this is so effective to me because for one thing, Richard Beamer is just a, a master actor and the way that he's able to convey this wistfulness, this longing for a time before the horrors of adulthood set in and you know the violence and you know the family traumas that he is currently in the midst of and he's just reflecting on a simpler time when he has you know joy in his life like true joy and things seem simpler um and beverly seemingly really picks up on on the significance of this and really feels for ben because she's just sitting there listening with uh tears in her eyes and i just think it's i I think it's a really like beautiful scene and i think that richard beamer this is his finest moment on on this season i think it's probably one of the most humane moments we get with ben horn and I, i think it's obviously fitting that we get it this late in in his life because of all the things that he has done up to this point but i thought that it was significant a few lines of his where he says when he's talking about richard he makes a point to say the boy never had a father uh, which i thought was interesting a little bit of uh, a little bit of an exposition on what we were talking about maybe last episode or a few episodes ago about how we don't know what the horns know about audrey and, right. and where richard came from Mm-hmm. So the way he puts it is that he never had a father and then tells this whole story in the context of my father bought me this bike. Uh, and then uh, and of course starts reminiscing and telling the story and then ends it by saying my bike that my father bought me or my fi- bike that my father got for me, which I, I've read it as like you were saying this um, like him lamenting on his, on his past and thinking fondly of his a simpler time of boyhood and also maybe thinking about what could have been if he was more of an influence in Richard's life, the way that his own father was on his him, because he says the boy never had a father implying that the responsibility fell on his shoulders and that he is maybe acknowledging somewhat that he, he, the, the responsibility that he has and, and maybe feeling like a, like he failed his grandson in some way which I thought was I personally I mean who knows we don't we don't know what their relationship was like before the show um but it 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 I don't know it served to kind of like really humanize this character a lot further and and later in his life he's clearly has a lot more introspection and a greater sense of right and wrong which is some of the like, like some of the most meaningful character growth or growth that a character could have I think yeah, it's a brilliant character moment, in my opinion. And 
I love it. I think that it's wonderfully acted both from Richard Beamer and from Ashley Judd, who is just sort of a, an empathetic presence, uh, mostly wordless here. Yeah, she says two things. She says, like, I'll do it right away. I think that's all she says. Mm-hmm. And, but, yeah, her face and her, her expression tells the whole story. Yeah. Yep. Love this. Um, let's shift gears rather dramatically and talk about this infamous scene here with Gordon and the French woman. Uh, Ooh, baby I love this scene thoughts <laughs> I think it's really funny um, if anything the funniest part to me is the smirk on Lynch's face the whole time this is happening like juxtaposed against the complete and utter deadpan of Albert's face um, I at first tried to maybe read into it similar to the blue rose scene from fire walk with me where we get the weird little like performance art thing that is intended to be read as the case. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I'm not so sure that that's what's happening anymore. Um, I think this is somewhat of a, um, just a commentary on his, on like Lynch's own film style and, and maybe how it is received sometimes but i overall i just thought it was i thought it was really whimsical and kind of funny the whole time through and just the way that he speaks french like tray chic like it's just so <laughs> it's so silly uh and then to have it have albert just sort of very very wanting much wanting to get down to business uh like of course many viewers i thought it was uh, I, I don't know I, I enjoyed the scene i know many people were frustrated by it but I tend to, I tend to just, I think maybe sometimes I choose to like these things, um, because, um, I don't know. Cause I, I could probably agree with everyone's point about how maybe it was pointless. Um, but at the end of the day, it was, it was very weird and odd. And I, and I thought it was funny. Yeah. I, I'm a little more mixed on it. I would say I don't, I don't dislike it. I agree that it's, it is funny. I love the the Trey Chic thing, and I love when she he responds to her when she she takes the sip of wine. And she's like Trey Bon or whatever she says, and he's like, "It's a yeah. good one." Uh, <laughs> that's very funny, but there's just it takes so long, and there's just something about this dynamic here where he's so much older than her, like mm-hmm. he. He is like her grandpa. Like to me, David Lynch never feels older than in this scene. I, I just, it just that that part of it is kind of icky to me. And then just, I don't, I don't know, man. Like the the turnip thing. Like I told her it'll turn up. So it, that was just like a bridge too far for me. I was like, okay, guys. Dude, like, people let's... read super far into that. I don't know if you were, if you read any of those theories, but people tried into to the like turnip stuff. Yeah, because they were like, why would they say his her, her mother's daughter and and not or, or like her? I don't know, I don't remember like the relationship, but people people were really reaching there for for quite a while uh, to try to mine something from this scene, which I I think we were in agreement. There's not a whole lot to mine there. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but I'm I'm never surprised when uh when that sort of thing happens in the community. Um, I will say though, what what saves this scene for me is Albert, who is really acting as the audience surrogate here. He is just looking witheringly at everything that's happening, and his face just reads like, "When is this bullshit gonna be over?" Yeah. Which, I'm certain is what a lot of people were thinking during the scene. Yeah, um, well, we we wanted to know what the Albert was there for some reason. Like, get to the fucking <laughs> yeah. point. Like, get this lady out of here and tell us yeah. why you're here. Yeah, so that part of it really works for me. Um, I also like. Uh, I also like the joke about Albert asking what kind of wine it is. And then Gordon going like looking at his watch, saying eleven thirty or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, There's one Albert, of those earlier too. And Albert doesn't even—he's so over Gordon that he doesn't even react. Like he doesn't roll his eyes. He just stares. There's just like no change of expression. Like you just feel as though Albert is really just at the end of his rope with Gordon. Like <sighs> when when gordon because they pause and stare at each other for a brief yeah. moment until gordon uh, is finally like what is it albert and albert kind of gives him like raises his eyebrows like okay finally you're fucking done with your mm-hmm. with your your song and dance here yeah and i do really this scene does turn very surprisingly on a dime to give us a, a genuinely touching moment i think where gordon says uh i really worry about you sometimes mm-hmm. um which again, I, it's it's often hard to tune out the the real world implications of what happens on screen, and we know that Miguel Ferrer was literally dying of cancer as he was shooting the show. Mm-hmm. So you know, for Lynch to like put you know put a hand on on his shoulder and say, you know, I really worry about you sometimes. Like uh, for me, it's just impossible not to think about that. So, yeah, um, those moments take on, or, or those, I should say, they take on like a, a moment unto themselves. Like whether or not that's what the scene is implicating, those two people, you know, sharing those words, it, it takes mm-hmm. on its own meaning. I think. Yeah, it's it's layered. So, um, yeah, I don't hate this scene. Uh, I think it's a little, uh, like I said, it's a little achy. It's a little, little too silly for me. Um, but there's enough that I find genuinely funny about it that I don't, I don't hate watching it or anything like that. Um, it's just when I, you I, think about what might have been left on the cutting room floor, uh, <laughs> and then the amount of time we were spent with this, it's like, okay, okay. I guess yeah. that's, that's, that's your choice. That's your creative dis- mm-hmm. decision. I will respect it. But yeah, I, I can, yeah. I can for sure be see both sides. Yeah. And the only plot function that this has is, um, for Albert to tell Gordon about the texts that Diane is sending and receiving about Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's really it. And it, it's a long road to get there. So, yeah, that's that. Uh, we don't see the French woman again. Au revoir. Um, so, Hutch and Chantal are waiting outside of Warren Murphy's, Warden Murphy's house waiting to assassinate him and the the Tarantino comparisons get bring up a lot 
with regards to Hutch and Chantal, but it's just, it's impossible not to think about it, right? Like, these two hitmen talking about, like, fast food and what they're going to do after they kill this guy. Like, they're going to go to Wendy's. It's just, <laughs> you you cannot escape it. I mean, especially considering that Jennifer Jason Lee and, and Tim Roth are people who have worked together in Tarantino films. Like, right. it's so overt that it, it's hard for me almost to think that it's not an intentional reference. I think it might be, especially given the fast food aspect, like obviously the the famous Pulp Fiction big Kahuna uh-huh. burger scene. That it's, is a tasty burger. <laughs> yeah, it's um, and also who knows if it's if it's meant to be like, you know, that sort of a, a reference or if it's just the the black humor aspect of it that he, he's sort of taking from, where Tarantino, of course, didn't <clears throat> invent. However, that that sort of like uh, that mood that he gets out of those these movies where you're you're unambiguously dealing with bad people like these characters are for sure bad people but they're likable and they have like the same cravings for wendy's that you have when you're you know in the office (laughs) they just happen to be their office just happens to be this this van at midnight with a sniper rifle where they're gonna kill some some warden in front of his poor child um yeah i don't know i because i i love tarantino and i he was probably my first director that I got into uh, where I, I started to explore all of his movies like him or him or Kubrick and it was around the same time so I definitely I was happy just to see uh, Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee working with David Lynch because um, I think that he could he could lynchify those those actors like he could he could get them in his sort of world uh, it was an interesting choice, though. Yeah, that every time you see them, they do have this very Tarantino uh, kind of vibe to them, and and all the scenes have a very Tarantino vibe to them. Even the one with Mister C, like they're still acting in that kind of, um, I don't know, relatable uh, way that that his that Tarantino's characters seem to to always be able to tap into. Yeah. Yeah, you could you could pull this scene out of context and show it to me, and I, I and you could just tell me that it was from a Quentin Tarantino movie, and I would hundred percent believe it. And I think that I would be surprised if you told me that it was from a David Lynch production. I think. Yeah, because it doesn't the way that he, I mean the way I'd expect a, a hitman to be portrayed by David Lynch is more akin to like uh, Ike the Spike, or yeah, maybe even something darker like like a Mr. C type character where he would force you to actually sit with the reality of, of what they were doing, which I think to an extent this scene does. Um, but it's more in a black humor sort of juxtaposition way rather than like, uh, uh, like, no, this is actually what, what it would be like to, to, to murder people for money. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought either way, I, I really love these two characters. I just love watching them interact with one another. They're just the way he's like, uh, where he's he, uh, he's trying to see if she wants to, Chantel wants to torture the guy. He's like, well, we could shoot him in the legs and then drag him out to the car. You could torture him then. She's like, mm-hmm. I told you, I'm hungry. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just, it, it's uh, I don't. Know, I think it was, it, it's cool to see Lynch, um, maybe taking influence too from from uh-huh. from another director. 
like more yeah, modern certainly. director, I should say. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what kind of relationship they have because Quentin Tarantino very famously shat on Firewalk with me, like in a big way when it came out by saying that Lynch had like gone way too far up his own ass and that he would never watch a David Lynch film again and all of this stuff. Um, so I, I do wonder what David Lynch thinks about Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. It's, well, uh, one, it's interesting. One can hope that 25 years later, um, he has a bit of a ma- more mature take than that as a filmmaker himself. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you never know though. Yeah, um, not with that guy. Yeah, you just you just never know with Tarantino. He he has he has some uh, some interesting ideas about a lot of things. Um. So yeah, it's actually pretty heartbreaking. This moment here where Murphy's son discovers him, it's like ooh, that's that's like pretty raw actually. Um. And this stuff is actually shown to us in the behind the scenes stuff, and I just um. I really like seeing the way that Lynch handles this scene. We get we get several moments in the behind the scenes of Lynch working with children and I found it very instructive because Lynch is very careful with them. Um and particularly in this scene because it does deal with like pretty horrible stuff and he's very clear with this this young boy he says, "Look, um this isn't real, you know. You, you see, you know, you see, you know, Murph, Warden Murphy. Or I think he calls him by his actor's name or, or something. But he says like, look, he, he's alive. He's fine. He's right here. Um, it's all fake, but you know, you need to pretend like it's real. You know, like it's like you know, he just he makes great pains to try to protect the psychology of of this child actor, and I, I thought it was very sweet. That's very that's important because you hear all the horror stories of like Kubrick torturing people and like <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock uh, just ruining people's lives. But there is this wonderful quote that I'm sure you've read um, the, from Lynch where he's talking about how he doesn't ever want his actors to be fearful and he doesn't yeah. want them to act with fear. And he he ends the whole thing by saying, um, like, I need them to, to love what they are doing in order to get the performance that I want because it's all supposed to be about love anyway. Love is what mm-hmm. makes the world go around. Love and puppies or something like that. He, like, mentions, yeah. like, some weird, some funny little thing like that. But I think it's a great point because he does seem to be doing everything that he does out of out of love and out of reverence. And it's cool to hear that he's he takes that level of care of the young people on his set Mm-hmm. of what is of course like an extremely disturbing show that deals with very mature subjects certainly yeah he really enables his actors like he really pumps them up you know he he's all about positive reinforcement you know he's not one of these directors that is you know he, like you said he's not Kubrick he's not sort of <laughs> berating them into a performance like he, he really takes the opposite approach of you know encouraging his his actors to to reach down and deep inside and and uh reach their full potential because you know by casting them in the role he's essentially telling them like i know you can do this so you know don't be insecure about that just be you and make it as real as you can you know um and yeah it's it's uh it's it's an approach that i i appreciate and that i I really like seeing um and i'm sure it's why 
so many people are very eager to to go back and work with him again and again yeah for sure he it's like uh, i mean I, I could imagine working with other directors and you know even ones that are just kind of average and that that don't you know they don't torture you but they also don't draw a wonderful performance out of your soul uh to go back and work with someone who does it must be um it must be fulfilling artistically for for a lot of these people who are professional actors like who do this for for a living day in and day out yeah certainly um <laughs> yeah i think it's not a coincidence that you didn't see too many actors coming back again and again to work with kubrick uh, you know, I I adore Kubrick. Uh, <laughs> I, I love him, but uh, he's, you know, I mean, you do see a few character actors like in small roles who who he really likes to use again and again. But like, you never saw, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson or Malcolm McDowell or Shelley Duvall or, or really any of these people come back to work with Kubrick a second time. Uh, you know, who knows if they were asked to or or what, but. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Anyways, it's just fascinating to uh, compare and contrast those two because we know that there was a lot of, of mutual love and respect between Lynch and Kubrick. Um, so let's talk about Doctor Amp. There's really not much to talk about, honestly. This is just kind of another rant from him. Uh, I think this is the third one that we get, and. Honestly, I think maybe it's one too many, maybe. Like, I think by this point, the Dr. Amp shtick, as much as I love it, might be wearing a little bit thin, just because it's essentially the same scene that we've already seen a couple times already. I don't know how you feel about it. No, I well, the first time around, I thought it genuinely, I thought it actually was the exact same scene uh, as the last one. Mm-hmm. It's well, the not. commercial is the exact same commercial with the golden shovels yeah. and everything. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, so I th- yeah, and it started off. I was like, "Are we just gonna? Is he just gonna play it again?" Um, but yeah, it, it 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 grows a little, a little old. Um, the the Doctor Amp thing in general, I think, was something that was hilarious. That could have maybe been best left to just that one thing. Like if we got, um, of of course, we do get more of him later with with um with Nadine. But yeah. I, I mean, if if I had to pick, I would have taken. Uh, if you take the amount of time that this scene took uh, and have that whole thing be Dougie getting hit with baseballs, I would have rather <laughs> that. And then just have, just be like, give me like, give me the, the five seconds of Dr. Amped uh, to be like, oh, yep, he's still, he's still doing his thing. And then give me three yeah. minutes of Dougie getting nailed with, with fastballs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Just I eating just... them. Doof. Bouncing off them. I just love the image of Sonny Jim just hurling a baseball at his dad and then running over to pick up and just doing it like 30 times. See, that would, that would have, that would have, uh, that would have tripped people out. People would have been complaining about that one on Reddit. Now that's, that's entertainment. Yes. <laughs> In my book. Yes, too. So yeah, like I said, not too much, uh, to talk about with Dr. Amp, just sort of the same sort of anti-authoritarian spiel that he's given a couple times already and uh yeah this is i believe the last one of these that we're gonna get um we see him in another scene with nadine later and i believe that is going to be the last that we see of dr amp you mentioned earlier that our introduction to audrey was quite jarring and unceremonious uh 
I think that's very true, particularly because it comes just immediately off the heels of Dr. Amp. And we just get a quick cut to Audrey and you're like, holy shit, it's finally Audrey. And I love the way that Lynch chooses to introduce her and Charlie because it's just them staring at each other. Audrey is just staring at Charlie and then the camera slowly pans over and we see Charlie at his desk just not saying a word, locking eyes with her, staring at them. And I think that that is a uh, just a perfect representation of the sort of weird adversarial <laughs> even cold war uh, that's happening between <laughs> these two throughout the season. Um, boy, there is so much to talk about here, but do you want to just give uh, just just your general impressions about about this scene in particular, maybe without uh, doing like a an, an all-encompassing take on 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 Audrey because we are gonna have a few more scenes. But just what are your what are your feelings about uh, this introduction that we get here? Oh, I think it was in- intentionally meant to be very jarring, and we've waited for quite a long time to get Audrey Horn, and when we get her, it is of course not in any some it's not in any semblance of a fashion that we were expecting. So. The first question on my mind was, who is this fucking guy and (laughs) what's his deal? And um, my overall impression of it was just that similar to similar to like that first scene with the Blue Rose Task Force. It almost it, it feels like right off the bat, like this is this is happening, question mark. Um, like just the, the the clutter around the office. It is all very uh i don't know how to put it it's kind of like old world it doesn't seem like it didn't mm-hmm. seem modern to me it's it seemed a little bit um it seemed a little bit i don't know like 50s or 60s and even the way that they're dressed and then uh a little oddity when they're talking about the crystal ball and, and charlie says audrey you know i don't have a crystal ball when there's a crystal <laughs> ball sitting in front of him like sure, what yeah. what like what's what is going on? What's this all about? Um, it 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 reminds me of like there's just a certain ilk of scenes in Twin Peaks, like the Roadhouse ones and like maybe the diner scene and and just some of these that that don't appear to be um, that that appear to be taking place in in something other than the the Twin Peaks as we know it, and I, I think that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Uh, but I although it was confusing and we got a lot of names and we got a lot of uh, probably a lot more questions than answers. I did appreciate how long this scene is. And it, it wasn't as if we got Audrey Horn for five seconds, getting hit with the baseball and then it was gone. It was, you got a ton to, to sit there and, and chew on and think about. And um, I'm still wondering who or what Charlie is. Uh, or what he's supposed to represent or, or anything like that. Yeah. My initial reaction to this scene was just question mark. <laughs> I didn't yeah. really, I don't know how it's possible to have any other take on it. Um, because it is so inscrutable and so unlike anything that we could have possibly expected from Audrey. 
And looking back on it now, uh, I really love it. And I, I really, I think it's endlessly fascinating the way that Audrey is represented here and her very subtle influence on the rest of the show. Um, but yeah, at the time, it was just like, what in the fuck was that? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I, I just want to say here that just in general, I think Clark Middleton who plays Charlie is so underrated. He is just fantastic in this show. He gets uh, way under your skin, like way, way is, under your skin. He just has so many line readings that I, that just stick with me. Like just the way he says certain stuff, like I'm so sleepy. And uh, later he goes like renege on a contract. I like there's just the way that he's able to deliver certain things that like just stick out to me um so yeah I have to give a shout out to Clark Middleton because I do feel like he is uh he is an unsung hero uh in the in this show um so man we get just a flurry of names here Billy Chuck Tina, Paul, like just a, just a, just a name salad. And it can be very difficult to make sense out of everything that's happening here, but let's, let's do our best here to just lay out what we, what we know and what we don't know about all of these uh, somewhat obscure connections. So we know that Audrey is having an affair with Billy and she's obsessed with finding Billy. Her husband, Charlie is aware that she's having an affair with Billy. And we also know that Billy is, uh, has been seeing this woman, Tina. Uh, we find that out, I think in a couple episodes at a scene in the roadhouse where we meet Tina's daughter, Megan, uh, mm -hmm. So that might be why Audrey hates Tina so much. We don't really get that from this scene, but if Audrey is in love with Billy and Billy has been seeing Tina, that stands to reason that that white might white might be why Audrey has some resentment towards her and why Charlie has to be the one to to call Tina and all this stuff. So yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So, um, so interestingly, Tina was the last person to see Billy and we learn from the aforementioned Megan scene that Megan and Tina, who will remind you is her mother, saw Billy jump the fence and was bleeding from the nose and mouth, which was something that Audrey had a dream about. She says that she had a dream that Billy, um, who's missing, has been bleeding from from the nose and mouth. So yet again, we have just another instance of dreams bleeding out into reality or, you know, dreams being this sort of intuitive device um, connected to the real world in some, in some obscure way. And 
some people have taken this fact of Billy bleeding from the nose and mouth to mean that he's actually the drunk guy in the jail that we're going to see later in the season. Yeah, I remember um, that floating around. I don't yeah. know. I don't know how I feel about that. You don't you don't think there's uh, much validity to it? I just don't I don't know. I mean, he could be Billy. Um I don't I just don't know. I mean, it might be Billy, but even if it is, I don't know that it matters all that much. Um Right. I get the sense that a lot of this name salad as you put it is in a lot of the stuff that we get from the roadhouse in terms of that same respect is it's meant to be just like a bunch of proper nouns. Um, and even though we do get some of like the double naming conventions where we can maybe even draw some comparisons to, to between certain characters. And then obviously we have the Billy being mentioned in twin peaks in the, uh, in the diner scene. I, I feel like we're, we're meant to, uh, only have x amount of information about these characters and it just wouldn't make sense to me to have um this character who is kind of a a focal point of all of these scenes to just be some drunk guy in the in the like locked up in the twin peak sheriff station um if he was missing um he wouldn't be missing anymore he would be found he would be in the twin peak sheriff station so but i don't know i mean i i i wouldn't be shocked if that were the case if it comes out that that was the case but the one thing that's been in my head is that all of this stuff is very soap opera like all of the names and connections and all the entangling relationships and stuff which is what Twin Peaks kind of was in its first season and first incarnation it was um, whether you can say it was a satire of a soap opera or a soap opera itself or both it had that that quality yeah to it and um i wonder how much of this whole multiple timeline thing is related to like are we witnessing scenes from the twin peaks where lara never died and it sort of took on its own um its own path and then that path is also a soap opera and features all of these completely unfamiliar characters that we we know really nothing about, but they're familiar enough to us because we know the setting and we know some of these other surrounding characters, but that the, the, the changing of that, um, like fundamental mystery behind twin peaks, uh, caused all of this, like other darkness to happen. And if like, are we getting the, are we like, are we getting the answer to like the, the question that's posed at the very end of the season, like during the season, like what Mm -hmm. actually happened as a result of Cooper saving Laura? Could that have something to do with like what we're seeing and why it is on one hand familiar and on the other hand, completely unfamiliar, maybe like Sarah Palmer, like she's in a familiar place where now there's this unfamiliar element and it completely um, sets her off. I don't know that that's, that's more of like my, um, like a grander theme of like, like how to make sense of all of these names that are sort of being flung at you with uh, loose connections to other characters. But e- either way, I don't know. I, 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 at the end of the day, I can just sit back and say, I don't know. Yeah, no, all that is definitely compelling. I mean, people listening uh, might notice that I'm I'm a little reticent to, dragging the whole you know alternate 
Laura was never killed timeline into things just because I think it it just complicates a lot and there's not a grounding for a lot of it but with the case of Billy and Audrey and all this stuff I do think that there's a case to be made that we are living in in that that storyline is sort of weaved in and out of two different realities to a certain extent that's how it feels to me yeah and I guess on a related note, um, and we uh, posted this on our uh, on our Twitter account just a, a couple days ago. Um, somebody who was there at the filming of the uh, the infamous uh, has anyone seen Billy scene at the Double R um, did confirm that they they basically just shot two versions of the scene. Like they would just they would shoot a version of the scene. And then they would sort of switch around people and then shoot a different version of it and then switch around people again and shoot a different version of it. So all of that was very much intentional. And we we are supposed to be thinking about all of that and all that temporal weirdness when when we're hearing about Billy and Chuck and Tina and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's my opinion. Um, I think we are too. And... While it might be a wise decision, a wise podcasting decision to maybe not approach things from that perspective at first, I do think that it's clear that the show is operating under the pretense that there is some sort of uh, incontinuity between maybe two or more uh, realities that we're witnessing. And I think that the significance of it is underscored by just what we witness in the in the final two parts because there we do unambiguously um get introduced to a new timeline one that is different from the one that we we knew before a twin peaks that is different from the one we knew before so the extent of like maybe when we're supposed to start thinking that way and when we're supposed to read into those scenes um it's hard to know and i think impossible to know but as the season keeps moving forward and forward there's certain things that I think are um, that you, you might have to view through that lens in order for them to make a little bit of sense. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know how much more there is to talk about with relation to the whole uh, Chuck and Billy and Tina saga. There's a whole bit about Chuck stealing Billy's truck, which I don't like. I don't super think means a lot. I think it's more of a, just a red herring than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe people disagree, but I, I wasn't really able to draw any sort of meaningful connections there. Um, I should point out though, that Chuck is actually the only one of these characters that we actually see in the return because Chuck is the husband of Renee who James very awkwardly tries to flirt with right. uh, in the roadhouse and Chuck, you know, gets pissed off uh, at James and, and tries to fight him and ends up getting uh, knocked out by, by Freddie in a screen glove at the roadhouse. Um, Who you get. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, Chuck, Chuck, we know is a real guy who exists in real life. Um, so we know that, like not all of this is just some fabrication of of Audrey's mind. I, I think that's what we're meant to see. Like the fact that we see one of these characters is meant to signal, like, hey, 
this isn't all just some odd fever dream on, on Audrey's part. Like, there are, you know, these are people who exist in, in the real world. Um, you know, whether or not they're exactly the way that Audrey imagines them or whether or not, you know, all of this soap opera-esque drama is, like, quite literally happening in the way that it's talked about between Audrey and Charlie. It's like, it's, um, it's, it's blurring. It is very much blurring those lines, I think. Yeah. And we, we know now that this whole storyline ends with Audrey waking up in some sort of white room in front of a mirror in a, in Mm -hmm. some sort of medical garb. So we obviously know that whatever it is, it's not, to be taken at 100% face value, but I think that it, it, the fact that we are getting these sprinklings of things that we do know to exist in the reality as we know it, um, it is playing with this idea, like of this sort of between two worlds feeling that you're maybe supposed to get from these scenes where like, cause of course, Audrey Horn is a character that we, we know and have a relationship to. And Charlie is one that we for sure do not. And mm-hmm. that the, the very nature of that is like between those two characters, this familiarity and unfamiliarity. So we're getting, uh, I don't know, that kind of gets echoed throughout that whole, um, their, their whole arc, which is like, of course, I think the most perplexing uh, or top two, perhaps <laughs> that. And then the, uh, the Hastings. Top 12. Yeah. It's in the top, it's in the top 100 most confusing things about Twin Peaks for sure. <laughs> yeah boy oh man there's yeah like i said we're gonna have a lot to talk about with audrey and charlie um but i i'm i'm just really fascinated by the the dynamic in these scenes and the way that these scenes are written because like we talk a lot about there being a dreamlike quality to a lot of lynch's work and often that represents it's that manifests itself in uh, very surreal images and uh, you know nonsensical symbols and things like that but there's a real dreamlike quality to this scene to me in just the way that it's written because like the way that their conversations flow it's almost like the conversational equivalent of one of those dreams you have where you're trying to run away from a serial killer or something, but yep. you just can't run. It's like your legs are in molasses. Like that's what, that's what this reminds me of. Like Audrey is just, she's trying to get through to Charlie. She's trying to get him to the roadhouse. She's trying to get him to sign these papers as she calls them. She's trying to get him to tell him, uh, to tell her w- what Tina said and she just she can't get anywhere with him and it's just immensely frustrating and it's just it's like torturous to her and um, yeah I think I think that part of it is fascinating and we do know that Lynch is actually the one who who wrote these scenes um, and that uh, Frost just sort of gave his blessing to these um, so these these are all like a, a pure uh, a, a pure David Lynch joint as it were um. mm-hmm. yeah I I definitely get a sense of malevolence from Charlie in how he 
withholds the information of that he that Tina gives him from Audrey and has a very stern look on his face where he's looking at her kind of holding it above her head and I get I get that same feeling of being stuck like that Audrey is stuck in this situation in that all of these different all of these different ends that she has are all kind of stalled through this character of Charlie which it it seems as if she's completely dependent upon him even though she is uh, clearly, like you said, adversarial towards him and, and berates him. But she, at the end of the day, uh, I think it's actually in the next scene we got with them, but like when she won't leave uh, without him. And, and even at the end, she, she asks him for help. So there's this like element of helplessness from Audrey, which mm-hmm. um, and that I think is being portrayed through her relationship with Charlie. Uh, I definitely get bad vibes. I think he's a bit of a, uh, I don't know, a bit of a gaslighter. I don't believe his truck story. Like, like <laughs> just the way the way he tells the story and the way that Audrey sort of follows along with it, almost like uh, word for word takes it at, at face value, and then to how he acts by withholding the information from her. Um, yeah, I get this this sense that he is, she's being manipulated or she mm-hmm. is being. Uh, she's being she's sort of stuck in this situation as you put it yeah she's being gaslit like you said and in the Mm -hmm. way that he won't sign the divorce papers he's like i don't know something's fishy i'm gonna need to run them by my lawyer you know what i mean yep yeah it's like he's exonerating himself uh as the potential bad guy when clearly that's that's what he is yeah he's just stonewalling her at every turn so yeah that's that's really the first Audrey and Charlie scene. It's a long scene. I think it's like 12 minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think it's only going to get more compelling from here. In my opinion, each Audrey and Charlie scene that we get is better than the last. So um, yeah, looking forward to talking about uh, these two in the future. Let's wrap up this episode at the roadhouse where we see the chromatics once again uh in their same clothes of course uh playing the song saturday which is uh not quite as uh not quite as driving as uh shadow the song that they played before uh i believe in like the first episode or second episode um but yeah still a very beautiful dreamy melancholy uh song that i enjoy quite a bit yeah what it lacks in melody it kind of makes up for in soundscape and i think Mm -hmm. it was a really perfect choice for um background to a conversation like if there were this really strong melody that your ears wanted to focus on it might not lend itself as well to um the conversation that we get although that conversation (laughs) maybe uh, wasn't as informationally uh, pressing as, as one might want, but but either way, I, I thought that um, I really love like the synth effect. I don't, I'm not even sure what it is, but it, it almost it's like a puffy cloud of sound that just sort of envelops the the guitars that I th- I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Johnny Jewel. I just love the way that he makes everything sound all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just it's so lush all the time even if the even if the melody melodies are relatively simple and familiar he just has a way of, of blowing it out and making it really gorgeous mm-hmm. um, 
So yeah, uh, this conversation here between Abby and Natalie. Uh, rarely am I going to say this on this podcast, uh, but I, I got nothing. <laughs> I t- yeah, I, mean, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to get anything. If anything, this is like lending to my uh, my theory of of that. There, this is just meant to be like just nondescript soap opera bullshit name salad um and i think that if there's like if if we can make a connection between like if we're going to say that there's more than one roadhouse say i feel confident that this is the the roadhouse that audrey shows up to and does her dance like it's some it's some sort of um it's just so intentionally or or just so overtly unknowable like there's we don't know any of these characters we don't know really anything about them we don't have a reason to care about this dude and his truck um <laughs> we don't we, we but but it's presented to us uh, i think at a time that is um consistent with with all this other stuff all this other weird um re- timeline jumpiness but yeah i'm with you dude i i uh i ain't get much <laughs> I mean, I enjoy the scene because I think it's actually really well acted. I especially like the guy who plays Trick. Mm-hmm. Just how pissed off he is. And, um, yeah. I thought it was funny how he holds his hand out and it starts uh-huh. shaking and he's like, I need a beer. Obviously, you want one. What about you? You uh-huh. don't want to? <laughs> yeah, just all these weird details about how he's, like, recently off house arrest. <laughs> um, yeah. Somehow. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, yeah i don't know it's it's amusing but i just i'm at a loss to really connect it in any meaningful way to anything that we've seen like at least in the other like seemingly random roadhouse scenes there are there are themes that i can connect to other parts of the show or or uh uh, or, or characters but this one there's just it's just like just a totally closed off one-off scene about uh abby and natalie talking about their friend angela who's seeing clark who's also seeing their friend mary and it's all just the sort of a gossipy gossipy conversation that you might hear in real life at a place like the roadhouse um yeah i don't yeah i don't know i don't i don't really know what to say about it beyond that honestly no, I don't know. If you want to make a case that there's some theme of like unfamiliarity in a familiar place, I'd, I'd run with that. Uh, mm-hmm. This is like these are people we have no idea about in a place that we have a lot of history with. Um, I don't how how that really ties into like a, a grand scheme of things. I don't know. I don't no. know if it's even supposed to, but. Um, who knows the only thing i could the only thing i could pick up on was the fact that they mentioned that their friend was like obsessed with this guy clark and that she's even dreaming about him and it's like dreams are obviously a big part of twin peaks but yeah like that's a a very flimsy connection and it just it doesn't it doesn't really connect to anything else so yeah i don't know i don't know man It's It's, it's a fine it's a fine scene i enjoy watching it uh but it leaves very little impact so yeah definitely the uh the oddest 
or not oddest, but just uh, like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have it's any inconsequential. Idea what to do with it, really, I'd, I'd yeah. call it. Yeah, it is. It is. It is inconsequential. It has literally no impact on how I read anything else, really. Um. So yeah, <laughs> on that very odd note, that is how this episode ends. Um. Yeah, this this is really sort of the end of what you could call the the second act of this show from here on out everything is going to ramp up in a really serious way starting with with part 13 and we're going to get a lot more mr c we're going to start to get you know more dougie more blue rose task force all of that stuff is going to start to barrel ahead in ways that are um very striking and significant and uh i i'm very hyped to get into the final third of this season because in my opinion it it is it is the best part of the show these 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 next six episodes so I, i can't wait yep so yeah that's gonna do it for us uh for this 12th episode thank you all for listening uh if you're enjoying the show, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. It is very helpful to us. Uh, you could also write into the show at 119podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at 119podcast. I'm Nick. You can find me at strenuousorb on Twitter. And you can find Dylan at piffdylan. Thanks again. And uh, we hope you'll join us for part 13. Later, guys. Peace out.